All right, we're going to be in Mark chapter 7. You want to open your Bibles? Turn to that. Mark chapter 7. I was, I'll tell you a little story before I get going here. There's a story of a little boy who opened a great big family Bible. And as he opened the big Bible, he was fascinated as he kind of fingered through it. He was looking at things and suddenly something fell out of the Bible and landed on the floor and he bent down and he picked it up and he looked at it and it was an old leaf. You ever done this? You stuck leaves? Yeah. An old leaf that had been pressed between the pages of the Bible and so he says, Mom, 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 look, look, look what, I, look what I have here. And his mother said, well, what have you got, son? And he, with astonishment, the little guy says, I, I think it's Adam's underwear. <laughs> that has nothing to do with my sermon. I just thought it was cute. <laughs> I thought it was cute. <laughs> yeah, the fig leaf. Huh? All right, let's stand together for the reading of God's word. <laughs> The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were unclean, that is, unwashed. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And they observed many other traditions, such as the washing of cups and pots and tables. So the Pharisees and the teachers of the law asked Jesus, Why don't your disciples live according to the traditions of the elders, instead of eating food with their unclean hands? And he replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites, uh, as it is written. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. You have to go to the commandments of God and are holding the traditions of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of setting aside the commandments of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother. And anyone who curses his father or mother must be put to death. But you say, if a man says to his father or his mother, whatever help you might otherwise have received from me is Corban, that is a gift is devoted to God, then you no longer let him do anything further for his father or his mother. Thus you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have you've handed down. And you do a lot of things like that. Lord, add his blessing to the reading of the word. Please be seated. So we've been talking on Wednesday night about the authority of Scripture and been dealing with it for a couple of weeks uh, from uh, Matthew 5 and the Beatitudes where he starts to talk about the authority of the Word of God and we've we've talked about it for about three weeks now and uh, and I wanted to continue in that really this morning um, and share some of that with you. Jesus is talking here about his view of the Word of God, his view of Scripture and people today struggle with this idea of the authority of the scriptures. Now when Jesus, if you look at verse 8 and verse 13, talks about the word of God, when he talks about it, he's actually talking about the part of the Bible which people probably struggle with the most today. 
You know, it's, it's the Hebrew scriptures. It's the Old Testament that uh, he's talking about. So here Jesus says three things really about the scriptures and the word of God. And uh, we're going to take a look at those and let's, let's first of all pray. Father God, we're thankful for Jesus. Thankful for what he's done in our lives. Thankful for who he is to us as a people of God. And we're thankful for the word of God that speaks to us about him and gives us truths about our own lives. And we pray that as we share together from the scriptures today that you would speak to us and affirm these things in our hearts. And this is our prayer, our Father, in Jesus' name, amen. Now there's five times in this passage of scripture that he criticizes what he calls the traditions of the elders. Jesus is not against tradition altogether, mind you. Uh, for example, what, what if uh, we didn't have tradition here? We have different traditions that we have, and we have the tradition every Sunday of gathering here, and you're here this morning because this is what we do. And uh, what if I said, well, we're not going to do this anymore. We're going to meet on Thursday, and I'll let you know what time we're going to meet on Thursday. It'd be chaos. You mean you'd be calling the church? Where are we, you know, where are we going? What are we doing? Why aren't we meeting? I mean, it would be chaos. Jesus is not criticizing tradition. Tradition of the elders is what he's after, what they're doing. And he makes that specifically clear to us. A set of rules that has grown up around the Bible, they're not the Bible. They've grown up around the scriptures. For example, the biggest one that always comes up in discussion one is the Sabbath day. And the teacher said, what does it mean to rest on the Sabbath? What does it mean to rest on the Sabbath? And the elders had a couple hundred rules. I mean, literally, a couple hundred rules about how you would rest on the Sabbath. You can't do this, but you can do this. You can do that, but you can't do that. Things like, you know, ritual purity. What's the ritual purity that we're to have? Why do we have to be pure when we go into the temple? What does the Passover mean? All of these questions that they had. How are we to observe the Passover? And in every case, the tradition of the elders answered, and they did answer, but this means a bunch of detailed rules. This is what you got to do. It's regulations, it was rules, and it was always that way. Now, the problem was these rules weren't in the Bible. They weren't in the Bible. But they became equal in authority. And that's what Jesus is criticizing here. And the many... Many of these things contradicted the original principles of the Scripture. And Jesus gives two examples of that here in this passage of Scripture. If you look down at verse 2 through 5, he talks about the ritual washing of purification, the ritual of purity. The law of Moses said the priest, the priests had to wash their hands before they led worship. It actually was very important, part of the liturgy of worship for them. It was a way of saying to God, I've washed, I've cleansed, I'm holy, I'm coming before you clean. If you who have sinned are going to approach him, if you're going to approach me, Jesus, you have to be cleansed. It has to be dealt with. And it was a ritual of washing. It was a good reminder of those things. The problem was by the time Jesus comes, According to the tradition of the elders, everybody, everybody was required to wash constantly. 
constantly. Wash before eating, wash before everything. Look down at verse 4. If you're looking at your scriptures, notice all the references. Sometimes washing clothes, washing furniture. Why? Why? Because you might have touched something unclean. Touched a Gentile. Just to be sure, wash. Just to be sure. Although that's not in the Bible. That's not in the Bible. Another example. This thing about Corban, down in verse 11. He says... um, In the tradition of the elders, you could take a piece of property or money or, 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 you know, anything and declare it to be Corban. Now, what that means is the word Corban means offering or it's been offered, right? It's been offered. You could say, I've dedicated this to God. This is what I've done. I've dedicated. So if, if somebody in your family even, maybe your mother and your father, and that's where Jesus goes to here, comes to them, they're in financial trouble and they say, you know, we need help. We're struggling here. We're going through difficult times. Would you help me? You could say, well, I'd like to help you. But you know, I got, I just, I've, I've dedicated all that to God. That's Corbin. That's what they would do. That's, that's Corbin. And Jesus says, by complying with the tradition of the elders, this is what he's saying here. You contradict the spirit and the biblical principle of honoring your father and your mother. You've gotten away with that. And that's what he's saying here. And then verse 13, notice what he says. I could give you a hundred more illustrations of this, but I won't. <laughs> you, know, you know, we could pile on here, right? I could pile on. I could give you a lot of things here, but I'm not going to do that. Why is he so angry about this? He tells us in verse 7 and verse 8, he says, you worship me in vain. You worship me in vain. Your teachings are just rules. They're, they're just rules taught by men. You have to go to the commandments of God. You've let go of those things. You've let go of those things. And you're holding on to the traditions of men and they're just, they're just beating you up. This is a remarkable statement in scripture. He says, if you let the human traditions, what the experts say, what your heart says even, let anything else have equal authority to scripture, you fail to worship God. That's, that's, gigantic. You fail to worship God. The authority of the Bible and the authority of God stand or fall together. It's together. Jesus sees the Bible as God-breathed. God-breathed. Not a human product, but something divine. The Word of God is something divine to him as he looks at it. And we'll, we'll talk about that in just a minute. He says, by not honoring the unique authority of the Bible and adjusting your life to its authority, you dishonor God and you worship him in vain. Jesus based all of his life on the Bible, everything on the word of God. Whenever Jesus has a problem, a question, the final word for Jesus is gratify. And the word in there, it simply means it is written, right? It is written. It stands written. It's written. And he does this throughout scripture. It is written. It is written. Gratify is simply, you know, it's a graphite. It talks about writing, the writings, the graphite, the, the writings, you know. The scripture stands, Jesus says. The scriptures are settled. God has spoken. God has spoken. In John chapter 10, he says, the scriptures cannot be broken. In Matthew 5, Jesus says, not a jot, not a tittle, 
which means not even a part of a letter, a little piece of a letter, will pass away till it all comes true. And in Matthew, he says, heaven and earth will pass away before God's word passes away. Think about that. Heaven, everything's going to be gone, but this remains. Think about the power of the word of God. Jesus based his life on the Bible, on the scriptures. Secondly, he based his actions on the Bible. And this is amazing. In Matthew 26, in the Garden of Gethsemane, you know the passage, the soldiers, they're all there. It's, a, you know, it's chaos. Everything's going crazy. They're there to arrest Jesus, and they're grabbing him, and Peter grabs his sword, and he pulls it out, and, and Jesus says, Peter, put up your sword. I could call my father, and he would send me legions of angels. But then what does he say? But how then would scriptures be fulfilled? But how then would scriptures be fulfilled? He's about to die. He's on his way to Calvary. Everybody's running around with swords and torches, and he's thinking of the scriptures. He's thinking of the word of God. It must be fulfilled. It must be fulfilled. You and I can only be saved because he followed the word of God. He followed the scriptures, and that's why you're saved today. He said, the scriptures must be fulfilled. I've got to follow the scriptures. I've got to follow what the word of God says. That's why in Hebrews 10, it actually says, when Jesus Christ came into this world, he said, I delight to do your will, O God. Your law is in my heart. I delight. At a time like this, in the garden, he based everything in his life on Scripture. So there's the mind, there's the actions of Jesus, and then he didn't handle uh, cosmic challenges in his life by his own willpower. You remember this, it's in early in the, his uh, ministry, when he was assaulted in the desert by, by the devil, cosmic temptation that was coming his way. Uh, accusations, and what did he say? It stands written. Same thing. It's, it's the word of God. It stands written. He actually said, when tempted by the devil, man shall not live by bread alone. Every word of scripture is my bread. Every word of scripture is my meat. Every word of scripture is my strength. It's my life. That's what he's saying to Satan. And when he was carrying his cross to execution, his life literally draining out of him, he sees women weeping on the side of the road that are watching him. What does he say? He quotes Isaiah. He says, daughters of Jerusalem, weep for yourselves. He's quoting Isaiah. On the cross, the absolute greatest possible agony of all. He quotes Psalms 22, my God, my God. He quotes Psalms 31, into your hands I commit my spirit. It's the Bible. It stands. He's quoting scripture. Look, the, the, the depths of your heart are revealed at times like this. In the struggles that you have in life. When the things you're going through that you can't understand. It's not what you willed. Not the plan you thought. Things are troubling for you. When Jesus is at the absolute limit of his life, his life ebbing away on the cross, when he was stabbed, 
He literally bled Scripture. He bled Scripture. It flowed out of him to us. These are people, and there are people all over who say, I want to follow Jesus. I want to follow Jesus. I'm interested. Yeah, but the Bible. Yeah, the Bible. There are parts I, I like. There are parts that I don't like. Some jots, some tittles. I don't like. It's, it's regressive. The scriptures are regressive. We, we're, we, we're modern people. We, we, listen, you can't follow Jesus and reject the very basis of his whole life. Come on. You can't follow Jesus and reject the basis of his whole life, what he based his life on. It's like, I want the warms and fuzzy things of saying that I love Jesus, I want to be with Jesus, I like all the cute little sayings, but then reject the very basis of who he is, the basis of his life, unless you're willing to adjust your life to the authority of Scripture, especially in the places where it contradicts you, contradicts your heart, the experts, our friends who are talking to us, our culture, there's no way you can follow Jesus. That's harsh, but I'm going to say it. There's no way you can follow Jesus. The authority of the Bible, the authority of God and Jesus Christ stand or fall together. The first point is to adjust your life to the scriptures. And that's what Jesus, you got to adjust your life to the scriptures. The second thing Jesus says is we have to grasp the purpose. We have to grasp the purpose. Notice verse 6 in your Bible. These people, he says, honor me with their lips. Their hearts are far from me. Their teachings are just rules taught by men. That's a quote from Isaiah 29. Jesus says, it's not about It's not about formal compliance. I want your heart. Grasp the purpose. I want to be close to you. I want your heart. The purpose of obeying the Bible is an intimate love relationship with God. God says, obey the scriptures because I want intimacy with you. The greatest illustration of this is in the book of Exodus. The principles there, it's in the Ten Commandments, before the Ten Commandments actually, just before God gives them the Ten Commandments in chapter 20, in chapter 19 and verse 4, he says this, I saw what I, you saw what I did in Egypt and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you out to myself. Now, now listen what he says. Now, if you obey me fully, keep my covenants then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. He says, if you obey my law, then I'll rescue you. If you bring your whole self, I'll bring you out of slavery on eagle's wings. If you obey, I'll save you. He didn't say that. He didn't say that. He didn't say that. God said, I didn't do it because you were obedient. Because you weren't. I didn't do it because you obeyed the law because you didn't. 
You didn't even have the law. I haven't even given you the law. I did it because I loved you. He wants a relationship. I did it because I loved you. Sheer, unmerited grace. God has already set his love on me. Why should I obey? He's already given me his love. I don't need to. Why should I obey? He says, you know, no, grasp the purpose. This is how you become my treasure. This is how you become one with me. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations, you will be my treasured possession. This is how you can treasure me and how I can treasure you. We're relationship. This is how we have an intimate relationship together. So grasp the purpose. And then the third thing, fall in love with the person that's at the center of Scripture. For people today, the, 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 the ideas of obeying the law, the intimate personal relationships seem antithetical. I mean, we don't put those two things together. Obey the law and have a relationship, you know. But we're wrong. We're wrong. If you're really falling in love with someone... If you really love someone with all your heart, you have a love relationship, and you want that relationship to continue, what do you do? What do you do? You research, you think, you watch, you find things that offend that person, and you avoid them, right? You avoid them. An important thing here, you don't have a love relationship if you're constantly offending the other person. No, no, no. You want to make them happy, right? You want to know the little things even in their life. Little things that made... My wife was really good at this with all the grandchildren. She knew everything about them. What she could do. What, what are we going to buy for them? Well, she had it already on her mind. The, 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 oh, I know. Caleb, he likes, he likes, you know, whatever he likes. I don't know. She knows. <laughs> you know, it, it used to be dinosaurs, I think. Maybe not. <laughs> <laughs> but she knows. I mean, she, she knows. She looks at these things. You begin to obey the will of the people you love. The, the will of the, the, those that you love. You want to please them with your life. When you love somebody, you put your happiness into their happiness. Your joy into their joy. That's how love works. That's how love works. And you adjust your life to the authority of the will of the beloved. And you surrender yourself to them. Your wife or your husband. You surrender yourself to one another. For love. When you're both doing that, that's a love relationship. That's a love relationship. What if one of you won't do it? This is a silly illustration, but I'm going to use it. In one of the old TV uh, Star Treks, one of the old ones, way back, uh, I remember in college, we all sit in the dorm and watch all this. It was, it was a big deal back then. It's kind of stupid now. You know, it's kind of, you know, you ever look at them, it's really silly, the props and all the stuff they use. Uh, but they're all silly now. So it, it's about a man by the name, maybe you'll remember this, Harry Mudd. Harry Mudd, you remember Harry Mudd? A mud has a terrible nagging wife. That's her there, kind of surrounds her. She's got this nagging wife. He's miserable. So he flees the planet, and he goes to another planet. 
And on this planet, he creates thousands and thousands and thousands of women robots. Remember, this is just great science fiction, Jeff. I mean, this is, this is high concept, you know. Thousands of women robots, and they're all beautiful. They're all beautiful. And he says, ah, finally, paradise. Finally, paradise. Because none of these robot women ever contradict him. It's always, yes, dear, yes, Lord Mud, you know. And he even has a robot that he made of his wife, and that, that's her right there. And uh, some of you, are, you're remembering this now? It's a great show. <laughs> he, cre- he creates his wife, and, with it, and on his wife, he puts a button. He's got a button. And he can push the button when she begins to berate him, when she gets, to, you know, gets going on him. Harry Mudd, where have you been? Do I smell alcohol on your breath, Harry Mudd? And uh, he says, shut up, pushes the button, and she goes, you, 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 you. And he goes, ah, paradise, paradise. And when the Starship Enterprise comes, he wants to get off this planet, and he's trying to steal the Starship, you know, know, the whole thing, he wants to steal it. He tries to steal it, he's desperate to get away from all of this planet. He's absolutely miserable. He's miserable. He doesn't have a single personal relationship. Because if you're in a relationship with another person who never contradicts you and always says, yes, dear, yes, dear, that person is not a companion. That's an object. That's an object. And there's lots of marriages like that. Can't be honest, can't contradict You've been objectified. You want a personal relationship with God? There's only one way. Only one way. You have to have a God who can contradict the deepest convictions, the deepest feelings of your heart. You have to have a God that can speak into your life. If you say, I want a personal relationship with God, but, but I'm not going to accept these parts of the Bible. I, I, I only accept this one. The, I like these over here. You've got a robot God. You don't have a God of the Bible. Remember Lot? Lot, he says, he says, he says God, God, why, why are you letting all these things happen to me? He's upset with God, and God comes after him. He says, hey, wait a minute. Where were you? Who are you? Where were you when I laid the foundation? Where were you? Who do you think you are? Without the authority of Scripture, you have a robot God who says, where were you, 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 you? Because you've pushed the button. You've pushed the button. When Jesus was disregarding the traditions telling his disciples and everyone else not to follow the traditions. This was a big moment. He was saying, I'll tell you what the Bible means because I'm the ultimate revealer of the Bible. I'm the one that reveals what Scripture says. And the Pharisees, their heads are exploding. How dare he? How dare he? People today are like that. I mean, they're all upset about Christianity. How oh, no, who you people think you are? How dare you? 
in Luke when Jesus comes back from the dead. He meets his disciples. You know the passage? They're on the road to Emmaus, and the second time he meets them are in the upper room. What does he immediately bring up? You know? What does he immediately begin to talk about? I mean, when you come back from the dead and you're trying to get your friends ready for the rest of history, what do you say? Both times, when he meets his disciples, he says, it's imperative that you learn to read the Bible correctly. Read the Bible rightly. I'm going to have to thank my daughter for this. Psalms 119, verse 130. The unfolding of your words brings light. It gives understanding to the simple. And I'm a simple man. You say, why do you do expository preaching? Because I'm stupid. I'm going to stay right here. <laughs> I'm going to stay right here. And I, 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 I'm better staying right here than what he has to say in the word of God. Because we're simple, Scripture says. We're simple. When you read a passage of Scripture, you shouldn't expect to get the meaning, really, all, all, all the time. It unfolds. The unfolding of your words. It unfolds. How does it unfold to you? How does the Scriptures unfold to you? We're, we're slow of heart to believe, Scripture says. We need to spend time thinking, to look, to, to reflect, to ponder, to, to discuss with one another, to savor, to taste to, to, to analyze, otherwise we're not going to get it. Luke 24, they're on the Emmaus Road. And look what he says here. Twice he says this. How foolish you are and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures Concerning himself. Concerning himself. And then in the upper room, same thing. He says to this, I told you this. He says, well, I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, in the prophets, and the Psalms. And he opened their minds to, so that they could understand the scriptures. Jesus says, the Bible, the scriptures, will be an absolute despair to you. They'll beat you up. They won't be a joy unless you learn how to read it. Unless you understand how you're reading. And what does he say about the secret of reading Scripture and understanding Scripture? You have to see that there's a center. You have to see that there's a center. Oh, there's stories, yes. There's demands, that are in scripture, but the truth running through all of them, they point to me. They point to me. I'm the center. I'm the center. I like what Keller has, as Timothy Keller has to say. He says, and he's a little bit more eloquent than I am. The word made text is about the word made flesh. I like that. When you only see the word made text and you don't realize it's all about Jesus, the word made flesh, that would be legalism. It'll mess you up. But when you realize the word made text is actually about the word made flesh, you suddenly realize that everything in the Bible is really about him and what he's done to save you 
and it becomes life. You know, Jesus said that. What does it say? He says, all those Pharisees, you, you, you keep on looking at the scriptures. You keep looking at the scriptures because you think that in them you have life. And you refuse to look at me, he says. You refuse to look at me. I bring life. I'm the life giver. And this word becomes life itself when you recognize that in Scripture and you read it properly and understand it properly. Unless you see that the Bible will be nothing, it'll be a crushing burden to you. And I'll give you an example of that. And I've, I've done this through when we did the series through, through David. You say, well, how does that work? Well, well and I've, I've tried to show that every week when we were talking about David, that, that the end of the sermon was always went back to Jesus. David went back to Jesus. David went back to Jesus. It was always about the Lord Jesus Christ. But let me give you one quick example. There's a wonderful story in the Bible. We all know the story, and we, talk, you know, we grew up with it. It's, uh, it's a story about Joseph. And he's sold by his jealous brothers, and um, they, they, they were bitter because of the coat of many colors and everything else with his father. And they sold him into slavery in Egypt. And they figured out he was going to die in slavery. And instead of dying, he rises to be the prime minister of Egypt, sitting at the right hand of the king, right? And Joseph forgives his brothers. He redeems them. What are you supposed to get out of that? What are you supposed to get out of that? Be like Joseph. Really? Really? Even if people hurt you, and they stab you in the back, try to ruin you financially, ruin your reputation, no matter how much they try to hurt you, love them, <coughs> forgive them, help them have a good life. Now run along and be a good Joseph. Is that inspiring to you? God save us from the story of Joseph. You know, who in the world can be, it's crushing. Who can do this? It's crushing unless Jesus is right. Here's what Jesus says. I am the true and better Joseph. I am the true and I'm the better Joseph. See, I was sold not into near death. I was sold into death. I went to the cross. I rose up not just from slavery, but from death. I came forth from the grave. And now I'm not sitting with some king in Egypt. I'm sitting at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Like Joseph's brothers. Joseph's brothers. We are the people who've turned their backs on him. We are the people who've lived as if he doesn't exist, people who betrayed him. We're the people who caused his death, but he forgave us at infinite cost to himself. To the degree you see that and that moves you and melts you and humbles you, to the degree you see him as the true and better Joseph, that empowers you. That empowers you to go out and live a victorious life. Five times in the New Testament, he said, I am the theme of the whole thing. Five times. Hebrews 10, John 5, Matthew 5, Luke 24, Luke 24 again, 44. Five times he says, I am the theme of the whole Bible. The whole Bible. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, all the promises of God in him are yea and amen. 
He is the one who fulfills it all. Just think of the Old Testament. I'm going to share some things real quickly with you, and then I'm going to be done. But I'm not going to go through them all. But you, you can Google this stuff you know, where, he, where he talks about where he is in all the books of the Bible. Let me give you just a few, all right? In Genesis, I was the word of God creating the heavens and the earth. In Exodus, I was the Passover lamb whose blood was sprinkled on the doorpost of your hearts so that you could escape the bonds of slavery. In Leviticus, I was the temple. I was the temple, the holy place where you met God. In Ruth, I am your kinsman redeemer. In Esther, I was your advocate, risking my life to restore you to royalty. In Job, I was your living redeemer. In the Psalms, I was the good shepherd. In Isaiah, I'm the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace, wounded for your transgressions, bruised for you. I am that individual. In Hosea, I'm the ever faithful husband pursuing the unfaithful bride. In Haggai, I'm the cleansing fountain. In Zechariah, the pierced son with whom every eye on earth one day will behold. And then in Malachi, I'm the son of righteousness rising with healing in my wings. He's the theme of the whole Bible. He's the theme of the whole Old Testament. Every bit of it is his story. His story. And you have to read it rightly. His story. Jesus is seen in virtually every chapter, every page of the Old Testament. And that's why it's still relevant today for us. Jesus is Alpha and Omega. And I'm going to close with this passage of Scripture. We'll put it on the screen. From Colossians 1. I think it's fitting. It's fitting. Sums it all up. He is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Let's pray. We thank you, our Father, for this precious book that unfolds before us through teaching through prayer, through discussions with one another. Thank you for, for giving us this word about your word. And we pray that you would, would help us to receive it as a joy, to receive it as a gift, not as a burden, because we see at the very center of all the stories of Scripture, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ your son. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.